Good morning, church. So this year, we have been going through the story of the Bible together as a church. And today, if you noticed, we have made it to the end of the Bible. We're in the book of Revelation, which probably, if I had to guess, I would say is most likely the least read book in the entire New Testament. Uh, It's a weird book. I think for many of us, it probably makes us uncomfortable. We don't quite know what to do with this book. And so a lot of time for a lot of us, it's just easier to ignore it and focus on the parts of the Bible that are clearer to us, that are easier to understand. Or maybe on the other side, there are people who are just obsessed with this book and ignore the rest of the Bible because they're so obsessed with the book of Revelation. Um, But the reality is the book of Revelation is part of the Bible, just like all the rest of the Bible. God has revealed it to us for a reason, um, and we're not going to have time to dig through and unpack the entire book today, but we're going to skip over most of the book today just to look at the very end and see how the book of Revelation brings this whole big story of the Bible that we've been looking at all year long, how it wraps it up and brings it to a close. But I realize there's a lot of confusing stuff in the book of Revelation that we are skipping over. So the plan is we're doing this one sermon today. The next three weeks, we're going to take a break because we're looking at Christmas because it's Christmas time. And then at the start of the year, we're going to take several weeks and we're just going to work our way through the book of Revelation um, and try and unpack a little bit more of what's going on in there so that we can understand what's happening. But big summary of what's happening in the book of Revelation. The big thing that's important that we need to remember as we look at this book is Revelation shows us God's perspective on reality so we can live for him today. If we keep that in mind as we look at the book of Revelation, it's gonna be powerful as we read it. Um, That's the big truth that we have to remember throughout the book of Revelation and throughout our lives is that God wins. Throughout the entire book, no matter what craziness and insanity is happening on the earth, God is on the throne. He never gets off of it. And if we know that God is on the throne, that means God wins. And if we're his people, his victory is our victory. We win because God wins. And today's passage gives us a glimpse into what life in the future will be like for followers of God when that victory is complete once and for all. And so Today, we're going to look very briefly at the book of Revelation, at these two chapters specifically. And then in a few weeks, we're going to come back and look a little deeper at what's going on across the entire book. You with me so far? Cool. And what we're going to see today is that understanding God's future equips us to conquer today. Understanding God's future equips us to conquer today. And we'll unpack that a little more. We're going to look at the promise, the stakes, and the urgency. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us all of it, even the confusing parts. And I pray that you would give us wisdom as we look at it today, that you would help us to understand who you are, to understand what you're doing in our world and what you're teaching us through your word, and that we would live as conquerors because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, I don't know what your experience has been with the book of Revelation. Uh, I think For many of us, if we've ever been taught anything about the book of Revelation, at least what I was taught as a kid, is sort of the the whole Bible up to this point happens here 2,000 plus years ago. And then there's sort of this pause, and then 
whoever, who knows how long. And then Revelation picks up on the other side of that pause. Okay, that pause has been like 2,000 years so far. It could, and today it could end 10,000 years from now, who knows. But what I was taught as a kid is that the book of Revelation is something for the future, something that's not happening right now. Uh, It's sort of like the rest of the Bible's way back here. This has just sort of been stuck on and we're just living in no man's land. And again, I'll show you in a few weeks where I get this in the book. Today, you'll just have to take my word for it. And if you have questions, come talk to me after service. But what I'm going to be arguing is that the book of Revelation is written to the church between Christmas, Jesus' first coming, and his second coming about life on earth between those times. So the book of Revelation is not just like we're skipping thousands of years ahead and talking about stuff that probably won't impact your life because you won't be around for it anyway. Actually, the book of Revelation is the book of the Bible that's written about the time that we are living in right now to tell us what's going to happen during this time and how are we supposed to live during that time. So it picks up at Christmas. It shows how God's story continues from Christmas into eternity, which is actually a lot of the same things we've been looking at as we went through the New Testament the past couple months. Like, how do we live as Christians after the birth and life and death of Jesus, but before he comes back, how do we live in that world, in that in-between time? The book of Revelation, it's all about that. And the, the really short version is that the time between Jesus' first and second comings, it, it's a time where God's word is spreading throughout the world, where God's kingdom is advancing, and at the same time, his followers are facing increasing opposition and persecution from the world around us. So God's kingdom is going out, God's word is spreading throughout the world, and as God's kingdom advances, the forces of darkness fight back against it and try to defeat it with all the strength and power that they have, and there's this cosmic battle going on, and you and I are stuck right in the middle of it. That's the book of Revelation in a nutshell. But the book of Revelation reminds us constantly throughout this time, yes, there's a war going on. Yes, there are going to be days where we just feel like giving up because it feels like how could there ever be a good result to this? But the book of Revelation again and again and again reminds us that no matter what is happening, no matter what's going wrong in the world, no matter how crazy things get, God is on the throne. God has never gotten off the throne. There's security that we can have as his followers because our God is on the throne. His plans will be fulfilled no matter what we face. We can remain faithful to him. And today's passage, it comes at the end of the book. It's this vision of life with God in eternity. And look at this promise that he makes to us in verse five. He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. That's the hope. That's what we have to look forward to. This, this eternity where we are with God in new heavens, new earth, with him forever as his people, that all the brokenness of our world is restored and made new. And that has huge implications for our lives today. Like I said, Revelation, it's written to equip us to live for God today in our world right here, right now. So this verse, that God is making all things new, one huge thing that means for us is that everything that happens in our world today matters. Everything that happens in our world today matters. Now, you may be wondering where I'm getting this, especially since in verse one, we see there's this new heavens, new earth, because the old ones have passed away. 
right? If, if the world's going to be wiped out, then surely nothing that happens in this world, nothing that impacts this world actually matters in the light of eternity, right? A lot of people think that way, but it's wrong because if you cross-reference that with verse five right here, where do the new heavens and new earth come from? From God making all things new. Maybe you can think of it this way. Are any of you rom-com fans? No, I think a lot of the ladies in here are probably lying, um, but <laughs> I can see it on your faces. All right, so, so imagine you're watching a rom-com and there's this girl, she's fallen in love, she's getting married, she has her mom's wedding dress from when her mom got married and her whole life she's looked forward to wearing this wedding dress at her wedding. And she's getting ready for the wedding and she realizes for one reason or another, this wedding dress will not fit me. Either like I'm too big for it or the, something got spilled on it and it's stained or whatever's happened, I cannot wear this dress for the wedding. I need a new dress. Now there's actually two ways for this girl to get that new dress in this rom-com. The first is to take mom's dress, throw it in the garbage, go to the store, buy a new one. The second way though, is to cut apart mom's old dress, find the parts that actually are still usable and sew them together into a new dress that incorporates the old one into something new and beautiful that actually works. You following me? The first way, you've just taken the, in both cases, the old no longer exists, something new has taken its place. But in the first way, that happened by just throwing the old one in the garbage. In the second one, something new happened because the first one was reworked, reincorporated, upcycled into something new, something different, but still connected, something beautiful and, and great and perfect for what you need. And God's promise in verse five is that he is making all things new. He's not throwing out the old earth and just starting from scratch. No, he's going he's gonna to do what the woman does with that dress. Take the parts that are good and beautiful and incorporate them into something even more beautiful. It means as Christians, if you're a Christian here, our hope is not that we get to escape this world and go to a better place someday. Actually, our hope is that one day God is going to turn this world into the better place it was always meant to be. It's not going in the garbage can. It's going to be upcycled, which means that our lives in the world today matter. Our hope isn't that we're going to escape this world and get away to heaven. It means that heaven will come to earth that life on earth in the resurrection will be heavenly. God's not throwing out everything from this point and, and starting from scratch, no. And that means the acts of love that we do matter. The beauty that we create matters. The ways that we serve and are kind to one another, they matter because God's taking all of the goodness, all of the beauty that exists in the world right now, and he's weaving it together into something even more beautiful. The story isn't ending and restarting somewhere down the line. The story is continuing. That's why if you read through these passages, there are Old Testament references all over the place. I'll just go through one because we don't have time for all of them. But if you look at the start of chapter 22, it talks about this tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit that's in the city. Now, if you know your Old Testament, the tree of life 
comes into the story in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they're created. They're living in the garden of Eden. There's the one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the one that God said, don't touch it. And they did. And then they brought brokenness into our world. But there was a second tree there, the tree of life, where if you eat it, you live forever. And the reason that Adam and Eve, after they ate from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, had to leave the garden is because God said, look, you guys are now sinful and broken and disconnected from life the way it was meant to be. If you reach out your hand and take from this tree of life and eat that fruit, you're going to live forever stuck in your brokenness. That is the worst curse that I can give to you. And therefore to protect you from eating this tree of life that is absolutely dangerous to you, you have to leave the garden. Not because I hate you, not because I want to harm you, but because I want to protect you. Because this tree is dangerous to you in your current state. And yet if we fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, what do we find? The tree is back and it's not dangerous anymore. This tree that, that actually would have brought curse in the past. It, it, things have been so fundament, fundamentally transformed about the world and about the followers of God that it's now there and it's abundance. It seems like there are many trees all over on either side of the river bearing fruit all year long for us to come and eat. And it's not going to harm us. It's actually going to bring healing and blessing to us. It's taking the story, fixing everything that's gone wrong and continuing that story. It's bringing it to this ultimate, beautiful fulfillment, everything as it's supposed to be, everything made new. And it's not just true of the universe on a cosmic scale. It's true of our individual lives as well. If you trust in Jesus, God is making you new. God is making you new. Eternity with God, it's not some appendix that just slapped on to your life after the fact of your real life in this world. No, it's the culmination of the story of your life. It's the ultimate way in which God's promise that he's going to work all things together for good comes true for you. It's this happily ever after that you've always wanted, but always wondered if it really exists. It's God taking you and, and, and removing everything in you that's harmful, that's destructive, and, and keeping the good and beautiful and weaving it back together into something even more beautiful. Just like the earth, God's plan is not to throw out the old version of you and start from scratch. It's to take you as you are and make you new. And the reason he tells us about this in the book of Revelation is that he wants the future reality of who we will be someday to shape the way we live in the world today. You know, some people think if we focus too much on, on the future, on heaven, on something beyond this world, it's going to keep us from caring about this world right now. But the Re book of Revelation sees the world entirely the opposite way. It understands if this world is all there is, if all our hope rests in the future of this world, we are in trouble. Because if you look at the book of Revelation, what you're going to see is this world as it is right now is going to be destroyed. The great cities and governments of this world are all going to be overthrown. The people of this world are all going to die. If our hope is in this world as it is right now, it's like trusting the Titanic to get us across the ocean. We're just in a sinking ship, right? It's going to end terribly. It's only when we realize my future is secure. No matter what suffering I face right now, no matter what trials I face right now, my future is secure. 
That's what's going to free us to take genuine risks and live with courage in this world. It's only when we realize my future is glorious. No matter what goes wrong right now, my future is glorious. That's when we're going to be able to humble ourselves and make sacrifices to do what it takes to actually make the world a better place today. Because I don't have to fight for myself. I can lay down my rights. I can lay down my desires because I know everything I long for and more is mine in the future. And it's secure. It can't be lost. And so I don't have to fight for it today because it's already in the bank. It's already fixed. It's already set. And like this way of living does not make sense to someone who's not a Christian, to someone who doesn't believe in eternity. You know, I was catching up with a friend last night and he was asking me, you know, you have such young kids with these travel restrictions. Like, how are you okay staying in Hong Kong and and being so far from the grandparents and not having them be part of their lives? And I was like, man, all of my reasons make absolutely no sense to this guy. Like the idea of feeling called by God to a place doesn't make sense to a non-Christian. The idea of of making sacrifices for your own family for the sake of a wider community doesn't make sense. The idea of my eternity is secure, like whatever we're sacrificing in terms of time together right now, we get back and more forever. He was just like, yeah, I don't really agree with that. I was like, of course you don't, because that's, that's just not the way that our world sees things. In Revelation, God gives us this glimpse of his perspective on reality so we can know what's really real and we can live in light of that. It's like the matrix. You know that movie? So if you don't know the matrix, the whole premise is that they're living in a computer program. They think it's real, but it's not. And this one day there's this guy, Neo, and and someone comes and tells him about what's been happening. They tell him, you've been living in this computer program your whole life. We want to give you a chance to see the outside world as it really is. And he's given a choice. You can take the red pill, follow the rabbit hole, see what's really out there, or take the blue pill and forget that this conversation ever happened. The book of Revelation is our red pill. Like the people in the matrix, we're trapped in this perspective of reality. It's warped, it's incomplete. It's not gonna show us what's real. We're limited. Like we we completely lack the ability to understand reality outside the confines of our own culture that we grew up in. Even if you think that's not true of you, it's true. We are limited in our perspective. Even if we had perfect understanding of the world, our perspective is so warped by sin that we wouldn't be able to make sense of it. We often get so caught up in in these lies or warped perspectives of the truth, we believe that's what's really real. On Friday night, I had a friend who was doing a really long 100-kilometer race, and I did the last 20 kilometers with them to help encourage them along the way. One of the teammates was really, really injured, and we were talking to her about it as she pushed on and continued through. And she said the thing that was motivating her to keep going was that nothing lasts forever in this life. Pain doesn't last forever. Even happiness doesn't last forever. That's the matrix right there. Because the whole book of Revelation is written to tell us joy lasts forever. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the great work of heaven. I love that quote. Joy is the great work of heaven. Yes, in this world, happiness doesn't last forever. But that's the matrix. And God is letting us glimpse through the curtain into reality so we can see what's actually happening. When God is on the throne, joy lasts forever. Blessing lasts forever. The book of Revelation is our red pill to show us reality as it truly is. It's only when we're able to see that 
that we're able to live properly in day-to-day life. See, the book of Revelation tells us over and over and over again, God gave us this book so we can live as conquerors. And conquerors, just to be clear, it doesn't mean we go around imposing our will on the world and making everyone else do exactly what we want. It doesn't mean we raise up an army and force everyone else into submission so we can be the rulers. In the context of the book of Revelation, being a conqueror means this, refusing to compromise on our faith. That's it, refusing to compromise on our faith, even when it costs us continuing to stand for God. The whole premise is that the battle has already been won by Jesus. So all we have to do to be winners and be conquerors is just not give up. And the book of Revelation is written so that we can endure in our faith. So that no matter what trial or tragedy or difficulty we face in life, we can have confidence that Jesus is on the throne. Our past is secure. Our present is secure. Our future is secure. We know that joy and blessing always have the last word in our stories. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid. God gives us this promise that he's making all things new so we can have the strength we need to live for him today. So what does that look like on a practical day-to-day basis? Well, I'm glad you asked. Maybe you've been feeling stressed and overwhelmed by just getting negative feedback at work lately. Maybe it's not lately. Maybe it's in a time in the past. I think we can all probably relate to that on some level, just negative feedback at work, stressing you out, overwhelming you. You know what Revelation shows you? It shows you that God is your lover who is ecstatic about you. This passage in chapter 21, it uses lots of wedding imagery. Other parts of Revelation tell us about this marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus, in case you're not clear. And throughout the Bible, who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. It's the people of God. If you're a Christian, it is you. That means Jesus, the God who's on the throne of the universe, delights in you like a groom delights in his bride on a wedding day. So when your boss criticizes you and complains about the work that you've been doing, this passage is meant to give you perspective. Your boss's criticism is temporary. God's delight in you is eternal. Nothing can take that away. Yeah, your boss's criticism probably feels more real in this moment than God's love for you. But when we peel back the curtain and glance into what's really real in the universe, it's not. What's most real about you is that you are loved and delighted in. Your future, your eternal, secure future that no one can take away is blessing and joy. If in those moments you really believe that's what's most true of you, How much freedom is that going to give you the next time your boss gets upset? It's going to totally transform the way that we live if we understand that this is really real. Another example, I know we have a lot of people in our church who are just stuck away from their families during COVID. If that's you, the book of Revelation is for you. Because the book of Revelation, it affirms that yes, what you are going through right now, it's hard. There is a valid reason for your tears and your pain. The tears and pain, though, they're not the end of the story. That's what Revelation wants us to see. A day is coming when God himself is going to wipe every tear from your eyes. Did you hear that in the reading today? Like, and think about this. God himself is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. He's not going to delegate it to some servant like, ah, you go take care of these ones. No. God's going to look you directly in the eye and reach up and wipe away your tears 
He's going to tell you it's going to be okay. And it will forever. There's coming a day where you're going to be in the presence of your deepest lover forever. And there's no place for sadness or pain or suffering anymore. And it's going to stay that way forever. And when we live with that day in sight, it gives us the strength to get out of bed and face today, no matter how painful it is to be away from our family, because we know this pain is temporary. But that joy, that blessing of being in God's presence, it's forever. It, it shows us God's perspective on reality so we can live as conquerors today, so we can live courageously, so we can not give up in the face of difficulty, so we can be people who aren't overwhelmed by the struggles of life in a broken, fallen world. And I realize what I've just been explaining, it may just sound like a, a little psychological trick to fool ourselves into feeling better during bad times, but it's not. And here's the difference. It's real. Imagine you have two guys walking down the street and they both just run out of cash. The first guy, he's super poor, has zero money in his bank account, doesn't know how he's going to eat tomorrow. If he tells himself, oh, it's okay, I'm rich, my future is bright, it's a coping mechanism. He's lying to himself to avoid dealing with the harsh realities of life in this world. The second guy, let's say he has $10 billion in the bank. He's just run out of cash on his person, but if he tells himself, you know what, I, I'm rich, my future is bright, that's actually going to help him because it's true. The first guy, he's telling himself a lie so he can avoid dealing with the realities of his life. The second guy, he's telling himself the truth so that he doesn't feel stressed out and anxious about a situation that doesn't merit his stress or anxiety. And if we're Christians, we're like that second guy. This is true. This is what's actually real about us. Telling ourselves, my future is secure. I am deeply loved. That's not a coping mechanism. That's not lying to ourselves. That's actually telling ourselves the truth so we have the proper perspective on everything else that's happening in life. It's not wrong for us to remind ourselves of that. Actually, what's wrong if we're Christians is to live as if that's not true. That's where problems come into our lives. And the book of Revelation, it's written to remind us this is what's really true. True about the world, true about God, true about you. Now, that's the case for those who trust in Jesus. What about those who don't trust in Jesus? We're going to look at the stakes of getting this right now, because the passage also speaks about their future reality, and it shows us how important it is to get our response to Jesus right, because the stakes are high. Chapter 21, verse 8, says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I realize some of us probably cringed when we heard that, because our culture does not like to talk about hell. We find it difficult to think that a loving God could ever possibly send people to hell. Many people in our world feel like a God of love and a God of wrath. It's completely incompatible. I just want to make three quick observations about this. First, the Bible is the only religious text in the world where we're introduced to a personal loving God who has a personal relationship with us. I think our culture loves that idea. We hate the idea of hell, but we don't realize they both come from the same place. You can't throw out one without throwing out the other. And so the Bible if you if you want a God of love and joy and has a perfect relationship with us, you don't get that anywhere else. You can't escape the reality of hell unless you're also throwing out the reality of a personal loving God. Okay, that's number one. Second, in reality, love and anger or wrath are not opposites. They're not incompatible. They actually go together. 
So a couple of months ago, I had Judah out at the park. He was trying to climb up something, so I was standing there, like making sure he didn't fall. And as I'm standing there, this group of teenagers starts walking towards us. And all of a sudden, one of them sort of like walks ahead of the group a little, walks straight towards us and puts his hand up in a fist like he's going to punch Judah in the face. I was like helping watch Judah and it all happened so fast that I was just frozen and shocked and didn't know how to respond to this, right? Like it's just such a shocking experience. And thankfully, one of his friends tapped him on the shoulder and was like, dude, cut it out. And I was like, okay, good. He didn't punch my child. But it, like, let's, let's just imagine for the sake of argument that he had punched my child. He walks up to my little child, goes out of his way to my little child who's done absolutely nothing to him and smacks him in the face. Now as a loving father, would a loving response be like, hey, I love people, I can't be angry at you, so it's all okay. That would be like the worst, least loving response I could possibly give. Like that, that would be horrible. If that kid had laid a finger on my child, you know what I would have done because I love my child? I would have sent that kid to the hospital. Like he would have been in terrible agony and pain because I would have crushed him and wrecked him at least until his group of friends pulled me off of him. Like he would have suffered because I love my son. And he was harming someone that I loved. My love for my son necessarily makes me angry at the people and things that harm him. Love isn't, isn't incompatible with anger. Love makes anger necessary because we're angry at the things and people that harm the people we love. And if that's true on a human level, how much more true is that on God's infinite level? If he truly loves humanity, he has to hate whatever harms and destroys us. It's part of love, which means if there are people in the universe who align themselves with and define themselves by things that harm and destroy themselves and others, God's love for humanity requires judgment against them. I have a quote. We're going to skip that quote, actually. Um, and we're going to go on to my third thing that I want us to see here. Third, without hell, the God of the Bible is actually far less loving. Now you may be like, what? How, how is that possible? Well, the teaching of the Bible is actually that all humanity deserves hell. That all of us have aligned ourselves with, with practices and thoughts and patterns of living that are destructive to ourselves and others. That all of us are on this side of people who have lined ourselves up against God, fought against him and the good that he's trying to do in the world. And God, as a just God, he can't just wave his hand and let it slide. His justice requires a payment. His justice requires hell for all of us. And according to the Bible, the greatest expression of God's love for us all time is that Jesus, God in human flesh, bore hell for us. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus bore the entire wrath of God against sin so that you and I don't have to bear that wrath. Christians, we don't escape that fate because God bent the rules and let, our, let us slide. We don't escape this fate of the lake of fire because we're better than everyone else. We escape this fate because God bore that fate for us. It's the ultimate way he shows and proves his love for us. Jesus, God in human flesh, he bore the wrath of hell so that I, you and I don't have to. Which means if we just throw out hell and say a loving God can't do that, it actually takes away God's greatest expression of his love for us. So yeah, the, the existence of hell for people in our world today, it may be an uncomfortable reality, 
but it actually doesn't contradict God's goodness. It doesn't take away from God's goodness. It deepens our understanding and appreciation of God's goodness, which means it's a reality we have to be aware of. Actually, just like the rest of the book of Revelation, God included this book about judgment so that we can live as conquerors today. It reminds us the stakes are high. There are real lasting consequences for getting it wrong. Therefore, stand for him. And this means that if we are here today and we are living for this world, for the praise and honor and glory that we can get right here, right now, if we still believe that what's immediately in front of us is what's most real about us and what's most real about the world, this verse is for us. It's a wake-up call, a reminder that there's a day coming when this world passes away. And on that day, everything you've done to earn the honor and praise and glory from this world rather than God, it's going to pass away with the world. That if you're seeking the praise of the world, that's not going to last. You know you exist for something more than yourself, but you've set your sights too low. If you really want to exist for something that is bigger, that's going to last, you need your focus to be on God's kingdom, the kingdom that endures forever, the kingdom that will keep going when this world is destroyed. And if you keep your sights fixed on this world only, if you ignore the God who made it and the God who made you and his plans and desires for you, then when the world is destroyed, you will be destroyed with it. If you work to advance yourself at the expense of others, destroying the people God loves, God will destroy you. But that doesn't have to be the case. The whole of the Bible tells us the story that Jesus was destroyed in your place so that rather than the lake of fire, you can have this blessing and joy and delight of living in the new heavens and the new earth, of being with God forever in this blessing and joy. Which means even if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this verse is an invitation for you right here, right now, to trust in Jesus, to receive his forgiveness, to become a conqueror today. And it's an urgent decision. We see in the last verse of our passage today in chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says, I am coming soon. He tells us this to help us make the right decision, to help us live as conquerors today. He is coming soon. It could be before the end of the sermon could be tomorrow. It could be 10,000 years from now. We don't know. But because we don't know, we have to live each day as if it could be today. Be constantly ready. Be prepared, ready to live each day with endurance. Live each day with courage to get out of bed each morning and live as conquerors. Because in light of who Jesus is, in light of the promises he's made to us, we know that that's what's actually true about us. No, life's not always going to be easy. In this broken, fallen world, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be tears. There's going to be pain. There's going to be mourning. There's going to be death. But Jesus is coming soon. And the trials of this world don't ever have the last word for the followers of Jesus. You know what gets the last word? Joy. Eternal, unending, never-ending joy. Blessing. Overflowing, everlasting blessing. Delight, a God who delights in you, who never leaves you or forsakes you, who is with you forever. If you are a child of God here today, that is what is most true of you. And the more you believe that's what's most true of you, the more you're going to live with courage and love and service today. The book of Revelation shows us God's perspective on reality to remind us who we are, to remind us that as God's people, the story really does end happily ever after for us, with God and his people together in perfect joy. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what's most true of you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what could be true of you. It's an invitation to live as conquerors today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this vision of life with you and the beauty of it. Thank you that you love us enough to make that a reality and to tell us about that reality, God. Forgive us for the times when we have been afraid that we have gotten caught up in the lies of this world and lived as if what we see immediately in front of us is true. Teach us to see your perspective on reality and to live in light of that reality. Teach us to love you more and trust you more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.